Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I've told this story before, but I read a book a few years ago by this guy, Danny Wallace. The book was called Join Me. Now, I won't go into the details of the book, but it was out of respect for an uncle of his who died that he decided to form a group. And he put an ad into a London newspaper and that was all that the, that the ad said. Join me. Send a passport-sized photo to post office box, whatever it was, wherever it was. That was it. No details about what they were joining, uh, what they would do, nothing about who he was. It didn't even mention his name in the ad. Just an ad that said, join me, send a passport-sized photo to this address. The truly crazy thing was that the letters started flooding in. All these people were sending passport-sized photos with all of their details on the back of the photo. Now, this morning we're looking at Jesus calling his first disciples, and in some ways it's pretty crazy as well what's happening here for a variety of different reasons. But we pick up the story this morning in, John Ch in Matthew chapter 4, immediately after the baptism of Jesus, which we saw last week. And look at what we read there, chapter 4, verse number 1. Then Jesus, led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He's just been baptised by John. God has spoken from heaven to say, this is my son whom I love. And then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's gone there in order to be tempted by the devil. That's what it says there in verse number one. 
It's no accident or a coincidence that the devil's tempting him out there. That's why he's gone out into the wilderness. There are three temptations that Jesus faces. Uh, First one's there in verse number three. The devil tries to get Jesus to turn stones into bread. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's going to be starving. That's That's a strong temptation and something that Jesus could have done. Jesus responds by quoting scripture. In fact, Jesus responds to each of these temptations by quoting from the Bible. Jesus answered, verse 4, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second temptation from the devil, he tries to be a bit clever. He quotes scripture to Jesus. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the top of the highest point of the temple. You're the son of God. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus responds with the obvious answer. He says, you don't do things just to test God. And then the final temptation, the devil's feeling pretty desperate by this point, verse number 8. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. I suppose there is a sense in which Satan is the ruler of this world, so maybe he did have the right to offer it. But Jesus responds by saying that God is the creator of all things and he is the only one to be worshipped. And with that, the devil departs. Now I'm sure that there are some valuable lessons that we can learn about facing temptation in these passages. Uh, One of the things that we see in the end is that all temptations are ultimately the same, aren't they? They're a choice between trusting God or trusting yourself, trusting your own instincts. Another thing to remember is that being familiar with God's word is a great way to be able to handle temptation, isn't it? The better that you know your Bible, the better you understand God's mind, the better you're equipped to be able to respond wisely and in a godly way when you're faced with those temptations. The better you know your Bible, the better you will be able to resist those temptations. But I don't think the main purpose of this passage is about us and what we learn about handling temptation. Matthew has an important lesson for us to learn here. It's a lesson about Jesus and his faithfulness. In the face of this temptation, in the face of the devil himself, Jesus doesn't flinch doesn't waver in the slightest. Jesus remains totally faithful and obedient. He is tempted and he's without sin. Now last week we got introduced to John the Baptist. We found out in verse uh, we find out in verse 12 that John has now been thrown into prison and his imprisonment for some strange reason seems to be the catalyst for Jesus starting his ministry. Jesus cho- and Jesus chooses a strange place to launch his ministry. Now, it's a little bit lost on us uh, and, and, and modern readers today, but Galilee was kind of the backwater region of Israel back in those days. 
Galilee was the place that they made jokes about. It was the Dapto of the Middle East, I suppose is probably the best way to say it. My apologies to all the people from Dapto. But the original readers of, this, of Matthew's Gospel would have heard Galilee and thought, really? Galilee? That's where you're going to kick things off? That's where you want to base your ministry? But Matthew gets it. Matthew knows why Jesus is doing this. See, there was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and you've got it there in verse number 14. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the two northern tribes right up on that Galilee end of Israel. By the way of the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus has come. The light has dawned. The kingdom is being established. What God had promised would happen all those years ago in the book of Isaiah is now happening. And when you read through this passage, there are a few things that kind of have a a familiar ring to them. I'm not sure if you've been reading through it or looking at it for Bible study, but there's kind of a deja vu thing happens when you hear these stories being told. Some very strong parallels between the life of Jesus and the history of Israel. Things like uh, heading to Egypt and babies being killed and wandering in the wilderness and being tempted. Let me join the dots on a couple of these things for you. The people of Israel, Joseph and his family, had to flee to Egypt and ended up living there for many years. Jesus and his family, we are told, go to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, the the new king of Egypt decides that he's going to kill all the Jewish baby boys. Herod tries to kill Jesus by killing all of the baby boys. For Israel, it was 40 years wandering in the desert. For Jesus, it's 40 days wandering in the, in the wilderness and being tempted. Israel go through the Red Sea. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. In Exodus, Moses goes on to, top, to the top of a mountain to receive the law that he gives to God's people. And in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus go up on top of a mountain and tell people how it is that they are to live as God's people. Do you see what's happening here? It's almost as if Jesus is reenacting Israel's history. But there's a big difference this time around. Unlike Israel, Jesus gets it right. Jesus is completely obedient, completely faithful. Jesus does what God wants him to do. And that's what the temptations are about. Israel had failed in the desert but Jesus succeeds it's no coincidence that each of the bible quotes that Jesus gives after those temptations all come from the same book of the bible they come from the book of Deuteronomy and if you know your old testament Deuteronomy is the book where they're standing on the edge of the promised land they are about to go in and take possession after one failed attempt they're standing on the edge of the promised land the land that God is giving them. Israel's history was one of failure and unfaithfulness. But Jesus is showing himself to be completely faithful to God, does what Israel couldn't do. 
The last thing that we see happening in this chapter is Jesus calling his disciples from verse 18 onwards there. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee when he calls these people to join him, to start following him, not just to start following him, but to keep following him. And what happens is really quite remarkable. Have a look at it, verse 18 of chapter 4. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, and his, sorry, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets and Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now I don't know about you but there's a few surprises in this passage. I mean the first surprise has got to be who it is that he's calling to have as his disciples. He's chosen fishermen and they're not just fishermen, they're Galilean fishermen. Dapto fishermen. Now, I think it would be safe to say that fishermen back in those days, well, it's probably pretty much the same as fishermen today. Uh, probably a little difference with the technology and the sort of boats that they're using, but it's not glamorous work. It's not prestigious work. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound snobby in all of this, but I'm sure that being a fisherman is a fine profession, so I don't want to sound disrespectful, but if you're planning to establish a worldwide kingdom, are these going to be the first guys that you go to? Are these going to be the ones who you say, hey, I need you on my team to get this thing happening? If you're rolling out God's worldwide plan of salvation, is it fishermen that you want heading up the team? If you're asked to get a team together... If, you were one, if God was bringing in his kingdom, who would you pick? I mean, you'd definitely get some marketing people to help you shape the message, wouldn't you? That'd be top of the list, I would have thought. Maybe a couple of successful businessmen who might be able to back you in what you're doing here. Maybe a couple of high-powered lawyers. Lawyers seem to be handy everywhere we go these days. Maybe celebrities, supporting, uh, some sporting personalities, some other big names from the movie industry. And why not get a few of the religious leaders from those days, the scribes and the Pharisees, get those guys on board. No, Jesus consciously chooses Galilean fishermen. And it says something about the way that God does things. It says something about the upside-down nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. A kingdom where humility is more important than your position or power. A kingdom where it's more important for you to serve others than it is to be served by them. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that I think kind of sums up the strategy that God has, the strategy that Jesus has here. It says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the low, lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are 
so that no one may boast before him. Jesus is establishing a kingdom, but it will have different values, different standards, different priorities. The second surprise is how people respond to Jesus. These fishermen leave what they're doing, they leave their boats, they leave their family and they follow Jesus, just like that. I mean, it's got to tell you something about Jesus. It's got to tell you something about his impact on people. I think this is something that shows what Jesus is like. Jesus doesn't ask you to join just to have a, a, a few new rules to obey. Jesus doesn't call us to simply be nice to each other. Jesus calls us to follow him completely, wholeheartedly, life-changingly. Jesus turns all of your priorities around. Following Jesus becomes the highest priority in your life and everything else has to fit in around that. That's what happened to these Galilean fishermen and it's just as true for any followers of Jesus today. Jesus may not be asking, to, asking us to walk away from our fishing boats or our jobs or our family, but he is calling us to make following him the number one priority in our lives, the most important thing for us. Third surprise is what Jesus calls them to do. Jesus sends them out, these fishermen, they know what it is to catch fish, but he's going to send them out to catch people. They'll be working with him to bring people into the kingdom. They'll be working with him to, to establish God's kingdom. Now, those three things are important things for us to remember. So if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then those three things need to be just as true for you as they were for the disciples back then. We have nothing to boast about when it comes to our Christian lives. God didn't save us because we were influential or clever or powerful or successful or talented or good with the messaging and marketing. God saved you because you were sinful and you needed to be saved. And that should humble us, always. Whenever we reflect on the relationship that we have with God, we bring nothing to this relationship. And God offers us everything through his son, Jesus. Second thing is this, what Jesus wants from us will be wholehearted devotion to him. Following Jesus is not a hobby that you turn to if you've got a bit of spare time or a quiet weekend. It's the life that we now live as people devoted to a saviour who has done everything for us. And the third thing is this, Jesus expects that we will be involved in the fishing industry. The truly remarkable thing is that the church today is still the same place that Jesus is sending out that message of salvation. We're here to help other people enter into the kingdom. We're here 
to help other people come to know and to trust and to love Jesus.